0: hello and welcome to zookeeping 101 this is the zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper all views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for so please come along for the journey enjoy the ride and thank you for listening Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things leaders within the industry, and who better to talk to? I'm very, very happy to introduce to you Paul Betchley. Welcome, Paul, to the show.
1: Yeah, not so bad. Not so bad. Thanks, James. Yeah, doing well.
0: It's really great to have you on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come
1: from, and what title you hold. Uh, So, yeah, so I'm Paul Betchley. I am Head of Zoological and Park Operations at Bill Wildlife Park. Uh, which is a little collection just outside Reading.
0: Absolutely cracking. And I think all our listeners will have clocked straight on to the fairly large position you're already in. And we don't just generally get given these roles. We do make our own luck. But everyone, as we're learning, has their their journey moments, those life moments, those true stepping stones, I guess, towards getting to the position they are and those highlights throughout their career, throughout their lives so far. Do you, do you have them, Paul? Do you have those real career highlights to get into where you are? To be
1: honest, never been very academic. Uh, I started off, really, I went to college, um, but then landed a job selling tropical fish halfway through. I, I left there um, and then went to an aquarium based at a bird park. One thing led to another, went to, went to the bird, started doing a little bit of an education um, thing on that. Ended up at the Hawk Conservancy down in Andover. I had many happy years down there, working closely with, with Raptors, which is one of my big loves um so I ended up in in Sparshall College done a little bit of technician work in in a college setting quite an eye-opener enjoyable at the same time and then back into pretty much mainstream zoos via Cotswolds and ZSL London while I was at London this job came along well the assistant curator's job came along at Bill and it's fairly local to where my my family's based basically I just had my wife just gave birth to our, our daughter so that the commute was getting a little bit of a struggle to London and back uh, with 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 lack of sleep when you've got a little one. And uh, so timing-wise, it happened perfectly. Been here now four years, just trying to progress um, and trying to bring the collection collection forward.
0: Uh, And I'm sure progression will only grow from strength to strength with someone like yourself there. So, no, some really, really great words. And I guess leading from that, do you have any advice maybe from your journey, from what you've learned from your roles so far, to your younger self, or even someone listening into this, and maybe a little gem you've picked up along the way, but more importantly, just something, some advice you've gathered, and maybe some words of wisdom to give.
1: I would take a little bit more seriously the advice I was given by peers, particularly as a young keeper. You know, youngster in the industry, you think you know it all, and, and you don't really take anything on board, and um, you think your way is, is the right way, and things like that. But I think, like, kind of looking back on it now, I. I got given some great advice. Um, didn't necessarily take it at the time, but now I'm starting to take it. I think that's fundamentally where 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 you can learn a lot is is from the people that you work with, from the people that have, have have been there and done it for many many years. So definitely listening to them, taking their advice, but also like kind of always going back before the zoo industry caught me. I'll say it, but uh, working hard at school is is one thing that I do uh, regret, if you like. It's it's been more of a struggle with without that academic backing than it would have been with the academic
0: backing. For sure, some really, really great advice. Now, to link in with that then, is there one trait, one attribute inside yourself which you would put down to... Your, your maturity of success and majority of triumphs throughout your career so far?
1: I think a hard-working attitude and and a good sense of humour has got me a long way. By myself, being, being quite hard-working in the position that I've got now, I think it's it's important to still pick up a broom, pick up a rake, take time to to kind of get in there with, with the, the guys that are working on the ground with time constraints and things like that and you've got meetings and um, various policies and protocols and emails uh, and things like that it gets quite difficult but it's it's really really important for me to kind of get out there and do a bit myself and I think that rubs off onto, onto other people well, I hope it does yeah
0: I love that mentality of getting stuck in and really helping out where you can at whatever level you are so nice no, some really Really great stuff. Now that links perfectly to we all know that this industry it can get overwhelming at times. It can get absolutely crazy, and we've got to learn to to deal with that and turn it into a positive and a success throughout the the daily, monthly, yearly running of our collections across the globe. How have you learned to counteract all of these crazy moments throughout the career and turn it into that that triumph? Turn it into that forward thinking success on a, a daily basis.
1: It does. Causes problems and it is very difficult, uh, particularly with the industry that we work in. Particularly with animals, you never know what that what animals are going to do. So you could be office based. There, there comes a time when you are going to have to drop everything and go out there. We've literally just today this afternoon we've done a cat one escape. It was drop everything, go and do that. So we we've done the drill, and then then you get back to it. It's trying to work out what the important things are really, and, and having the ability just to close down the laptop um and and get out there to to what really really matters which are the animals that are in our care so yeah it was uh yeah i was running around the marsh with a little uh lynx is earlier on today
0: well that's definitely a story that i have not heard before and i think our listeners haven't heard before i haven't had a manager so far to wear lynx ears running around a marsh but there you go i think it really sums up that this industry chucks us a whole range of different skill sets more so a whole range of roles that we have to fulfill. And in this case, is was well the case. No great group to hear. Now, I guess the next question then is the days can be crazy, but more importantly, not every time things go to plan. The word mistake is quite harsh to use, but mistakes can happen and problems can come about, which maybe don't go to plan as we would hope. How have you learned to counteract these and and really alter your own brain to turn it into a success and a, a real learning curve for you to push on and become the person you are?
1: I think kind of starting out on a career, you take you take your mistakes very, very hard. take mistakes incredibly hard. But I think, honestly, I don't think there's any keeper in the world that's never made a mistake. And it is all about learning from those mistakes. You're dealing with, with animals there that are unpredictable. You're dealing with the public, which are unpredictable. And if you put them together, then, then mistakes will happen. Um, but it's, it's all about like kind of learning from them um, hopefully trying to never make the same mistake twice. Every mistake that I've been involved in, if you like, you can kind of link it to other things that you're doing to, to teach yourself to try and keep the other side of those mistakes, basically. But I think the main thing is, is to realise that mistakes do happen. It's not a personal thing. Um, you know I've had I've had bosses that have been bawling at me um, and shouting at me and things like that when you're a young keeper that hurts as you kind of process it so I like kind of yeah you've got every right to do that now I've learned from that I can get on with it so not to dwell on the situation not to dwell on it and learn from it as opposed to keeping it all bottled up inside then mistakes happen again
0: absolutely some really really nice words there and I, I think exactly that to to communicate is key and to not dwell on it and I think this leads us perfectly to this next segment and that is the building of a team with any of what we've just talked about it's the people you work with as much as the animals which really make you succeed or make you fail make you enjoy or make you not enjoy however you want to view it when building a team at your end at bill what is it you're looking for from a individual what is it which makes an all-round keeper in your eyes? It is difficult,
1: particularly now, because the jobs are few and far between and literally hundreds of applicants will come through. So you need certain things to, to pick out off a CV, basically. The CV is the most important thing. And it's not necessarily about the animals that you've worked with. I see a lot of a lot of CVs that, that list animals that they've worked with. That's that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for for basically a little bit of passion, a little bit of, of something else, if you like. That would be my advice on CV writing. Not necessarily to list everything, but the attributes as a person is important as well. Here a Bill, we do a lot with the employment of apprentices. So the apprenticeship scheme and things like that is very important to it. So we've got three apprentices now uh, on the keeping staff They go through that two-year apprenticeship and almost like kind of learn their trades, working, but also studying. And it, it works well for them, but it also works well for me. They've got that drive. They've got that passion. And you can you can kind of pick it out. Um you know, and hopefully they'll they'll progress into into careers, whether it be with us or or somebody else, but it gives them good grounding of that. But also, like kind of what you were saying before about like kind of a lot of people look to change professions and look to the animal industry to change profession, and that's okay because I, I wouldn't necessarily look at a CV from somebody that hasn't got animal experience that shows attributes that I can pass that pass over to an animal keeping in the industry as a negative. There's some some really good keepers that have made that that transition from being pretty guys or girls or, or whatever into the industry. So it's it's all about attributes. I always got told, my one of my, my first jobs there was, if you know the right end from a broom and you know how to make a good cup of tea, you can do this job. A lot of the time you can teach animal husbandry. If you've got that inside you to have that passion to take it a little bit further, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking for and that's what I'm looking for anyway is somebody to have that that little bit extra that's, that's willing to stay five minutes late just because their yard's not clean, to run, run an animal down the vets as quick as they can, but don't get back till nine o'clock at night. Or if you're flying birds and things like that, you can sit underneath a tree till it gets dark and then be back up there first thing in the morning. That's what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, I think we've all been there. That dedication is key throughout this industry and it's definitely no nine to five jobs. So no, could not have summed that one up better myself. And I guess with the building of a team, Let me chuck at you, Paul, The probably the most awkward, the most unanswered question in this industry, and that is, what is more valuable? What is it that someone should be looking for more of? Should it be three years of experience or three years in education in the form of a degree or a DIMSA or so on? What what is more valuable in your eyes, and what do you
1: think if someone was asking you that question, you would answer? It depends on the role I'm looking to fill. I work off of off of bands, which one it helps me because I have got more experienced people, and then I've got lesser experienced people. Not to be disrespectful to anybody when I say that. So if I'm looking for a, a slightly higher position, like a senior keeper, or a league keeper, or something like that, then I would look for either a Dimsdale qualification or um, or something like that alongside something. Experience working within the industry, I would go for somebody that has done volunteering as opposed to study for a degree. It shows me a lot more. The, the bands that, that I kind of I kind of work to are not just there for me for in, employing people and things like that, but it's also to give a bit of progression to keep us up the ladder. If you're working in a collection, there's nothing more demoralising than working in a collection where. All you can see is where you are. Don't get me wrong, there's there's people out there, all they want to do is keep animals, all they want to do is be a zookeeper. That's that's their that's their drive and that's their passion. Um and that's absolutely fantastic. They don't want any of the other problems that go with climbing that ladder. I think there's there's always an opportunity if you've got those bands in place to kind of climb that ladder if you like. Because I know for me I love zookeeping. I love I love the industry, I love I love what we do, but also there needs to be something else. They like kind of that mountain to climb, if you like. Just for for me personally, but I know not everybody's the same. But so the scoop around that answer, if you put me on spot and ask for one or the other, I will go for practical experience as opposed to paper qualification.
0: Yeah, for sure. Some some cracking stuff there, Paul. Now, to conclude this and to wrap up this little bit of building a team, is there anything that anyone listening who, you know, whether it be coming into the industry or looking for that next role or looking to work your way up the hierarchy, it's bad enough getting a CV through the door, getting that interview to get yourself seen and heard. Is there anything else that someone could do for you? That little gold star, I guess you could argue on the CV to make themselves more desirable, more aware for you, and I, I guess a little bit brighter than the other candidates.
1: Yeah, I think I think the more the more skills, the more like kind of feathers you got in your bow, as it were, the better. Yeah, I mean, like kind of like first day training, and things like machinery, driving and things like that are going to be desirable. You're going to see that on a CV. That for me is going to be picked out better than I've worked with lions, tigers, hyenas, polar bears, whatever. That to me is, is going to be more beneficial because fundamentally you can put, you can put the skills together and no matter what species you can put the, the kind of to learn them. on a CV. For me, it's just about being as concise as you possibly can. It's different for every collection. For me personally, at the collection that I am now, that process is a lot different to say somebody like like ZSL or like Chester. Um bigger organizations, it goes through a number of people who get like kind of trigger points and things like that on a CP and then those get filtered out just because they get so many of them. That's the only way they can survive. Um, whereas somebody like like myself is advertising for a job, then every single one of them will come down through me basically so I get to see every single one of them and that that's nice but it's also you're there and you, you do have to pick out certain things you have to pick out like kind of okay what's your experience like what else can you give We're working with a small team as well that's that's really important it is like kind of that extra thing that you, you can bring uh, no matter what it is it could be it could be really small I mean you could be rifling through CVs and, and all you see is I like to watch nature documentaries you see that all the time you get somebody else that is like kind of I like to go play pigeon shooting that for me is like well okay if you can handle that there might be a possibility of going on the firearm team and things like that so you're linking it all together i'll be definitely get as many skills as you possibly can and definitely put them down no matter no matter how small you think they are i'd put them on a cb some great little tips there now this leads us
0: to the big questions as part of this podcast episode where we tackle some of the more hard-hitting questions throughout this industry and usually unanswered so let's dig in paul and see how we get on. And, and the first one, it actually takes us all the way over to the USA, over to America, leading to their demographic survey of their keeping ages. And more importantly, the checkout ages of their keeping teams. Now, unfortunately, it's seen a rough checkout age keepers leaving the industry around the early 30s. And that's something we can roughly relate to over here in the uk now it could be down to a whole range of things due to uh, living costs uh, it could be due to wanting a family you know you name it there is probably a many a reason for this but i want to chuck at you we're not considered a trade currently we've got these potential things going on behind the scenes do you feel there's any way we can change that, any way we can help this? And I guess, what have you got to say on this on this topic?
1: Um, I, d- I do think that it is skilled work, the, the job that we do. I hope that will be recognised um, and I hope that that will change. I think it got particularly profound with the pandemic that we've just got. We all turned into key workers, but we weren't legitimate key workers, if you'd like. But if, if we didn't turn up every day and feed those animals and look after those animals, it won't be here. It became particularly apparent then. I do agree that there there is there is the checkout point. I, d- I don't know whether that down to to progression within the within the industry you can move up that ladder, but the the higher you go, the turnaround time is a lot longer unless you're really lucky in that lucky position. But normally, like kind of the people in the in the top end of the industry, they don't move around. They don't like kind of go from here to there that's where patience come into play and things like that well like kind of financially i think we need to look at the whole industry fundamentally how much we're giving these keepers you know what wage you're on can they survive that can they go out and have kids and then come back in the industry is is that financially worthwhile for them to do that or would they, che- would they check out then and that's not like kind of a, a male and female divide that's a being a, being a dad myself that's that's like kind of something you have to weigh up is whether financially i can support or oh, we can support this child, this family together. So I think that's that's something that to change. Whether it will, hopefully, but look at the pay grades in other places. It is, it's creeping up? It's creeping up to a, to a manageable level. Uh, and also, like kind of a, a lot of collections. When we do it here, um, we give accommodation to certain keepers. That comes into play with with a financial point of view as well. I would hope and I would like to see that checkout age getting higher and higher and higher.
0: Yeah, absolutely smashed it. And that leads us. To number two. Now, number two takes us to the newest part of this industry. It's the change in the Secretary of State guidelines, over a 100 page document, full to the brim of change coming to the UK from animal welfare to conservation to education you name it, it has everything in it. So, I want to take us to the conservation element and I want to focus on the fact that it now wants zoos, wildlife parks, safari parks to prove their worth, to show the true conservation going on within their collections and the work they're doing across this globe to really make change happen. Not simply just giving a big lump of money and more so making the conservation count in their eyes. And that's how it's obviously kind of phrased. So where I'm going with this is how if you give you unlimited funds... How would you achieve this? But more importantly, I think it's probably more relevant. How is Bill already achieving this?
1: There has been a lot of talk about sort of about this this coming in, and there's been a lot of like kind of almost like ne- negative backlash on it. Um, so it's really difficult and things like that. But fundamentally, that's what we should be doing. That's part of why we do the job that we do. The days are gone with just keeping animals in cages to the um, You know, there's more to it than that. We all work in this industry. We like to think we all work in this industry to actually put something back to save species, to research species, whatever. So I think if money was no object and everything like that. But definitely, and I've I've worked in collections that have sent staff out in the fields. I think that is so important. That's so important for for a keeper, not so much learning the trade or just coming into the trade, but it's important for every single keeper, if you like. Uh, No matter how old, no matter how many years you've been in there, is to see what you're doing out there where it should be done, basically. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to habitat management and, and research of certain species. So I think if, if money was no object, then it would be nice to as to our to kind of pick a species or a habitat and concentrate on the people that are, that, that are out there working alongside that, tap into them, use blueprints of, of certain other zoos and fragments of that, that wilderness and that kind of, right, that's, that's now reserved. That can't be touched. But what we can do is we can research wildlife within that trees plants flowers insects whatever and tap into that that's kind of like what i see what ideal world um, the difficult thing is to actually like kind of put that into practice from a financial standpoint i think as well saying that i think there needs to be that balance between like kind of the collection you're keeping how much is costing you to support that collection how much money revenue is coming into that collection and then offsetting that by what's going on out there in the world. That's kind of the tricky part, really, is to get that balance between all, all three of those. With With the new legislation, I think it, it can only be a good thing. It can only be a good thing because that's the only, the only way is it's, it's going to change um, and it's going to be flipped on the head to concentrate more on what's going out there in the world is to actually enforce it within the collection. So initially, you read it and you think, wow, how am I going to do that? But then the more we think about it, the more we think, yeah, well, that's what what really we should be doing. Um, So I I, I only think it's a good thing now.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's the biggest thing. You know, no one likes change. When you actually dive into it, you actually look into it, I don't think there is as much change as people think. I think we are doing some amazing work across this globe and we just need to almost show this more, which maybe this is going to exactly show.
1: There's collections throughout the UK, throughout Europe, throughout the world that are doing some fantastic work in the field with various species. And I think the more people that get involved in that, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big budget thing like kind of saving Elephants or something like that. It could be the hoverfly work that that the Highlands Wildlife Park are doing. With that species out there in the wild, it's it's the, the stand lizards in this country, it's the is that the project that um, Wildwood are running uh, with the native species coming right away from, from the smallest little beetle right up to beaver reintroductions and hopefully going down there and then and maybe one day links to reintroductions and things like that but but it all stems from that in situ work of sorting the habitat out and, and getting our habitats sorted out um, and doing the research in, in whether we can sustain those animals going back out there basically that's 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 the hard one. That's the most difficult one. As, as you both know, reintroducing something, letting something out of the box, that's the easy bit. The difficult part is making sure that once you've let it out of the box, it can sustain itself and its future generations. That's, that's the difficult part.
0: Absolutely. And that leads us to number three. Now, this is a question that everyone gets excited over because it's collection planning. It's something every zookeeper would love and adores being part of, from suggesting their favourite animal into the collection. On the other hand, just understanding how the collection's going to tick, how it's going to progress, and its future plan, and exciting at that, I'm sure. So the question I've got for you is, with Bill, how is the collection plan unique within this industry? And looking back, is there anything you would change, maybe looking forwards from that?
1: We've dabbled with collection plans over the last probably three years, shifted things up a little bit. Historically, we were, we were kind of fundamentally a, a, a bird park. We're with a few exotic mammals and a few reptiles and things like that. But it's primarily birds. We do still have, in my opinion, coming from a, a bird background and a, a bird guy, if you like, a pretty neat collection of birds. um But I think with the, with a collection plan now, we tend to look for more unique animal We're we're not a member of the at the moment, so we're a kind of. Our hands are tied with a lot of like kind of the, the the niche species, if you like. We've got five that we can work with and we can we can go to the Yasa and, and kind of almost like kind of buy into. So now some of those aren't aren't available to to non-IASA collections. So we have to think kind of slightly outside the box on on getting that uniqueness to the park. So we've kind of almost like kind of fell into it that way. So now we're moving more into like kind of species like the Chikamara, um a little mara species that, uh, that we're now the only collection to have them. Um, there's only like, kind of those two pairs and another couple of individuals. They're the only ones in the country. Uh, they're bred readily out in Europe, but they're, they're not seen in this country. We've now a, a breeding herd of guanaco, wild formalamas. Um, we're the only collection to have a uh, breeding capabilities of that. We're one of four or five collections to have Tayra. Um, to exhibit Tera. so we have gone down the tayra road, road instead of the fossa road, so we're going more into like kind of that almost uniqueness, but also we're going more into like kind of the the, the rescue aspect as well. So our black and white rough lemurs, they're, they're rescue animals. We're delving more into into that side of things as well. So every animal I look I look at it needs to have a purpose. It needs to have a purpose about what we're we're trying to put across to the general public in education and things like that. What that animal gives back regards to, it's going to sound really shallow, but it's it's a reality of life. Financially, how much can that animal and that species bring back through experiences and things like that? But also that that can be linked into education. So it's not necessarily for us. Our collection plan isn't necessarily about the rarity of the animal. It's about how we can link that back to their Wild cousins or anything like that, and also the the rescue aspect of that. Coming from like kind of a, a, a raptor background, really heavy on birds of prey, this, uh, one thing I love is, is my birds of prey. I think the first thing I've done was get rid of seven species of owl. I'd love to have kept them, they were great, I love them. But from a public point of view, could that, and from an animal point of view, could that space be better used for? Uh, another species with with a high conservational value with a high level of educational value and things like that so we're we're definitely moving into into the more uniqueness around the collection with some animals that you wouldn't necessarily everywhere so I, I think that that's what we're moving into but for me that rescue out there and that rescue drive that's a, a lot for me as well so it's it's a case of the, the collection plan has to be fluid enough to 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 take that in there there may be something that comes up that we we just can't refuse from many different factors but every single one of those those animals will be will be kind of almost discussed between various people so it starts out with like kind of management level but then that will be filtered down into into the into the guys that like I'm looking after these animals they get as we both know you get a bond with these animals if I turn around to somebody and say "Right, we're getting rid of those those self-cotted tortoises um because they're not giving me anything back I'm going to get backlash from my keepers so they have to be involved in it in in some aspect along the way uh, and voice their opinion and things like that because I think that's that's the worst for a keeper when your boss comes to you and says, I've just done a collection plan, this is what's happening. When you when you've got no no feedback on there and then that, that like kind of causes too many problems for me. I've I've been there at uh, that end and I'd like to think I like kind of I want to include everybody. They're doing the hard work, they're making a bond with them. At the end of the day, I'm just like kind of a glorified member of the public walking around saying, Yeah, I like that. That's once that's clean and tidy, that's good, that's brilliant. But they're the ones that are actually like kind of working with these animals and they need that bond. And I think that's where that's where collection planning comes into play really is is that inclusivity of everybody not so much like it's it's a free throw it's a, it's like kind of a candy store this isn't a pick and mix this is like kind of realistically how we are we going to do this
0: yeah I couldn't agree more teamwork makes the dream work as it said so no some great great stuff now I've got a question for you then and that is looking at the role you're in how would you describe it to our listeners in terms of exactly what it is because the historic, the the stereotypical terminologies for these keepers, you know, your qualified keeper, your head keeper, your curator, your director. There's such a diverse role now. You know, there's about six different roles all piled into one. So for anyone listening, for whatever level they are, how would you describe the role you're in, and how how does it compare? I guess to your traditional keeper role.
1: I think in in my heart, I'm still, I'm still a keeper. Uh, I, I think that that will never change. Uh, I do love that, and that's that's the the part that like kind of the ladder that you climb. You lose a bit of that the higher you go. Yeah, I do, I do look at said there like kind of sometimes from from a young keeper, you look up in like kind of in all of the higher management. But for me, sometimes I look down in all. Um, I, I kind of yeah, I, I, I want to be doing that. I don't get the bond with these animals. I don't get like kind of that like kind of like a walk into an enclosure. And those animals recognise me. You kind of, you kind of miss out on that because again, the, the higher you go, you're always the bad guy in terms of these animals because you're the one that you don't want to break the bond between your keeper or your animals. So if anything goes wrong and they need any treatment or anything like that, you're the one that's getting in there and catching them while those those keepers are well out of the way. Um, and then they're coming back in and basically nursing them back to hell. According to that animal, you've been the devil. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but but as well not like kind of it's it's rewarding on another level. It's nice being involved in something from from the word go. Um, particularly big projects big like kind of conservation projects or uh even even enclosure builds and things like that to be involved in it from from the word go i can't get enough of it's it's, it's really 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 nice it's really neat and i think that's that's like kind of you, you miss out a lot on that when you're a young keeper concentrating on your animals you miss out on that you're like kind of all of a sudden you've got this brand spanking new enclosure and you, you're just delivering that animal inside there so there's, there's different different like kind of levels so i think every every single one of those levels gives you something extra but it it also it takes something away it's finding out for everybody individually where they want to sit keeper whether it be lead keeper senior keeper curator or even higher than that so it's it's all about what what your you personally are comfortable in where you want to sit in that In that ladder, because each one of those roles has the same importance.
0: Definitely. And that was a great way to really pull together this podcast. And we're now heading into the final section of this podcast episode. That leads us to the quick fire rounds. As we've learned, it can either fly by or erupt into conversation. So, strap in, Paul, let's give it a go, shall we? Now, number one, I think it's quite a simple one, but good luck. And that is, what is your favorite animal?
1: I love my scavengers. So, I'll give you top three. Vultures, hyenas on, on a, a completely different different level. Bears, never 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 worked with them. Um, but like kind of the the more I delve into the world of bears, the the more I just like kind of I'm I'm getting kind of drawn in into it.
0: A great answer. Okay, number two. What is the best side of the industry? The
1: best side of the industry is I I think that the privilege that you should have of doing the job that, that, we, that we do basically is we're never gonna be millionaires unfortunately. But waking up not dreading to go to work, that's a nice thing. And that, yeah, I think people should be thankful of that. I think that's that's the best the best part of it because generally everybody i well, wouldn't do it otherwise if you weren't really happy. And um, so it's it's that it's that almost that like kind of that that privilege feeling.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay. To fit that question around then, what would you improve within the industry?
1: Uh, I think I think we touched on it before. I think recognition, attitude from other people outside the industry, I think I think that could be a, a, a little bit skewed sometimes. Like of like kind of weddings you go to and like kind of oh, you're a zookeeper and you get the head to Oh, that's be nice. But is it a proper career? That type of thing. That, that needs to change. But I think that that, that will come with, with recognition of the, the job that we do basically. It's a tough job and people need to realise. Yeah, that.
0: yeah, totally. Now, this is a very large question. I do apologise. I'm slightly stitching you up here. And that is, what is your top tip for mental health and
1: wellbeing? Realisation of the role and the job that you undertake. It's tougher than the, a lot of people think it is. So I think realisation in that. Um, but I also think like you have to teach yourself to to not take things to heart. Um, But I think the main thing is a collection with good communication will always be the best ones for me. No matter how much money that collections have got, how big they are, whatever, they've got good communication from the top to the bottom, then I think that will help a lot. I think it's it's the, the ability to feel like you can talk to somebody about the problems that you're having is really, really, really important um and and without that i think we're, we're destined to fail so i think it, it comes down to to communication is you're more senior people they have to be the ones that are approachable but also like kind of the peers you work with you just need to be able to talk to those people in within every situation we're all like kind of very good at, at talking about like kind of animals and animal problems and things like that but we're we're generally very closed off about speaking about ourselves that is one thing that we're like kind of get in a team and don't be don't be afraid to talk my main tip really, but communication. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So this next one is going to
0: take you absolutely anywhere in this world. And that is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Um
1: there there are there are loads. There are loads globally that, that I would like to visit. I've been I've been lucky enough I've I've like kind of I've done a lot of the, the, the UK zoos which are which are fantastic. So generally it's like kind of you, you pick a species that you want to see. I I think some of the ones that are coming up and really, really going heavy in like kind of france and places like that those are the ones that i would really like to visit visit now a collectional point of view but but also from from an enclosure build point of view from from a, a display point of view from from even a signage point of view i think like kind of a, you, you you must realize this yourself you pick up on, on different things when you visit a zoo the more years you've been working in a zoo it's it's like kind of the that the, the animal is almost second. It's like kind of I get I get pulled up by my family all the time. Why are you take a picture of a fence? There's a there's a tiger behind that fence, and you're taking a picture of the fence. Well, I kind of like that fence. I kind of like the way they've designed it. And things like that, you know. A lot like kind of the the, the European ones, but yeah, definitely like kind of. A, there's a couple in France that I'd like to go and visit. I'm not going to try and pronounce them, but uh, you probably know the ones I mean. If you in in Europe, things like kind of European these they. Coming about some really neat species that, that you don't see anywhere else, but also like kind of the, like kind of uh, things like uh, different species that I've never seen before that I really want to see. I generally have them, so but uh, but yeah, maybe maybe I'll get there one day.
0: Yeah, one
1: day I'm sure. One
0: day. Okay, so the next one then is in twenty to thirty years. I need you to put your mystic hat on. Go forward to that era. Do you still see zoos being the same as they are today?
1: It's strange go away. Hopefully not. Hopefully, they would have evolved as much as they have from 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, I think there's, there's there's still work to do, um, and, and there's still like kind of attitudes change from a zoo point of view. I think it's only it's only now that the word zoo has become acceptable again. Um, you know, it's it's not the it's not the the barren cages and the concrete pits that you used to see. If you went back twenty years ago, that's a lot of them were like. So I'd like I'd like to see that that progress, and I'd also like to see a, a lot of like kind of the, the the zoo industry being just as involved in the wild uh, and, and linking those linking those together. I think that will happen. I don't think it will stay the same, but I don't think it will fall back. Um, I think that the you know, the only way is to, is to have to progress, and I think that's what the the new guidelines are trying to to get out of zoos, which uh, which for me only could be a good thing.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, so delving a bit more into your personal side, who in this industry is your idol?
1: So I don't within, within the industry, I think there there are, are so many inspirational people. There's not just one. I mean, the, the the easy the the easy one to say is like kind of band around the the, the Jane Goodalls and the David Attenboroughs and stuff like that. Um, but I think they're um, Gerald Durrell. But uh, I think there's, for me, the most inspirational people—not so much within the zoo industry, but with the, within the like kind of the, the whole conservational banner, if you like—is the people that dedicate the whole of their life on on either one species, one taxa, one part of the world. They're the people that I kind of think, wow, you, you kind of are a little bit of an inspiration. Those those are the people for me that that, that really get it. I think it's that, that collective almost give up their life for one cause, that's got to be inspiration. Those are generally the ones that don't get the recognition as well. So whether they don't necessarily want it, that's not their, their vocation in life. Um, and that, again, is an inspiration.
0: Yes, yeah, some very, very kind words there. Now we're on that final question, Paul. We're so, so close to finishing. And I want you now to wrap up this whole episode, this whole industry in only three words for us.
1: In, in three words. Um, rewarding worthwhile challenging
0: yeah that's really well summed up this whole episode and the industry now i just want to spend a moment to say thank you so much paul hopefully you've enjoyed yourself it's been a real privilege having you on hearing your journey your stories to be told and your journey so far it's been really insightful and um yeah i can't thank you enough no problem at all it's been a pleasure we'll hopefully get you on again very soon but until then take care
1: of yourself no problem at all see you later bye
0: And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.